This is Tracing Architecture, and I'm one of your hosts, Sean Swisher. This episode is brought to you in part by AIA 10 Phoenix Metro. This is our second of three special episodes we're producing in collaboration with the 2021 AIA Arizona State Conference. If you haven't listened to our first special episode, New in Town, you don't need to worry about listening in any particular order. But along with the great conversations we had with Dr. Paola Sanguinetti and John Zarnecki, we do also give more background on the special episode series, and John shares some information on the logistics of the conference, so make sure to take a listen. For today, we're again hearing from two more of our local design community members who will be leading conversations with our conference speakers. But in this episode, titled In a Different Light, our guests find some unique connections between their work and their respective speakers. Our guests for today are Darren Petrucci, AIA, and Claudia Capeljoy. First, I'll be speaking with Darren, who is the founder and principal of AIR, Architecture Infrastructure Research, an architecture, urban design, and design research firm in Phoenix. Trained as both an architect and urban designer at Harvard University's Graduate School of Design, Darren is a professor in the Design School at Arizona State University and a senior sustainability scientist in the Global Institute of Sustainability, as well as an affiliate faculty in the School of the Future of Innovation in Society. At the conference, Darren will be speaking with Toshiko Mori, the founder and principal of her New York-based eponymous firm and professor at the GSD. In our conversation, he reflects on the personal and professional ties that they share, some of which he didn't recognize until fairly recently. Darren and I met over Zoom in between his classes to talk about the conference. So let's listen in to Darren and hear what he has to say. Darren, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Sean. It's good to be with you. So let's go ahead and get right into it. As founder and principal of AIR, you have worked on diverse project types from municipal transportation infrastructure to private residences. What are the common threads of your work and, and how do you incorporate your research into your built projects and how does your built work inform your research? Thanks. That's a great question, but probably longer than 20 minutes, I can give you an answer. I would say, you know, um, a lot of my um, thinking in architecture really happened during my graduate thesis, where I sort of coined this term amenity infrastructure. And that is also a area that I, the firm was born out of, but also my academic uh, tenure and research uh, on this notion of uh, ostensibly how in a city is really, if you think about a city like Phoenix, these cities that are sort of south of the 42nd parallel, rapidly urbanizing south, southwestern cities, you, you really see the city is driven by engineers and developers. And so um, the engineers are providing infrastructure for the city for the function and and uh, making sure that things uh, work properly. And the developers are providing amenities ostensibly, you know, in the form of housing or marketplaces or resorts and other kinds of things. And so I was very interested in that intersection and thinking about how do we as architects uh, think like engineers and think about the amenities or the things that uh, people in society may desire. So that kind of rational and desire piece is where that notion of amenity infrastructure came from. And so my, my entire thesis was about looking at a big box mall in Scottsdale, believe it or not, and it was about 95% complete. And I was arguing that it was about 5% complete. And then, you know, ostensibly adding more program and things that complemented the mall didn't uh, overtake it. And things like 7th Avenue and some other urban projects that that I've done that research into the users, into the the infrastructure of the site, and trying to develop new infrastructures like the canopies and things like that that we saw on Seventh Avenue. That that was really the kind of birth of a lot of that thinking. 
And so architecture infrastructure research, that term infrastructure is key to everything that we do in design, if, whether it's a custom residence or an urban project. Uh, we really think about the role of infrastructure. And lately I've been getting, uh, in the last, uh, I would say, eight years or so, been really getting interested in biomimicry and nature and thinking about that as a form of infrastructure uh, in our work. And in your research, both professionally at AIR and academically at ASU, it tends to focus on that intersection of environmental resiliency and then the possibilities of transformative infrastructure, not just in an engineering appendage, if you will. So yeah. you also recently launched Fairtrade, a nonprofit whose mission is to provide innovative design solutions for the greater good of society. Can you tell us more about your academic interests, your research yeah. interests? And then where you look to take this new endeavor? Yeah, so fair trade, it's interesting. It, the idea was born out of, we're, we're doing two projects in Cape Town, South Africa that are, they're living buildings and they may, we'll see, be the most sustainable residential projects in the continent when we're done, we're, hope, we're hoping. The first one broke ground is Gemini 4, just broke ground three days ago. But these this project is one where um, we developed some new building technologies and, you know, it's a fairly well-to-do client. They're in a nice area of Cape Town at the base of Table Mountain. They are going to be pretty high-end duplexes. Uh, so we're increasing the density and doing a lot of other things, but they're also, you know, net positive buildings and we're dealing with water and all kinds of other issues uh, as part of the living building challenge. And what I realized was that, you know, we're doing these great projects. We're doing all this research and yeah, you know, as Corbusier said, it's good to sweep your own floor of your, uh, of your office because you find a lot of good ideas on the floor. And I think, you know, we're realizing that could we take some of these ideas and bring them to, let's say, the townships or some of the disenfranchised neighborhoods. So the idea was born out of this idea that uh, some of this new building technology we're developing, could we create a not-for-profit that the, the client could then donate this technology? The way this technology works is that there's a big upfront cost, but then afterwards, you know, things are pretty affordable. So if you could donate that technology, so to speak, to a not-for-profit, and then the not-for-profit could work with, and we're working with Longa, which is one of the townships in South Africa, to build new kinds of structures for marketplaces that collect water, produce solar, uh, solar energy and and maybe housing, but we're not we're not really pushing that. We're looking more for like social condensers. So the idea was a kind of Robin Hood notion that you know we could take this technology that our wealthy client is allowing us to develop and then bring that to these more disenfranchised areas. So that's how Fair Trade was born. And then once we once we created the not for profit, then uh, a good friend of mine, Will Haywood, who is also works with Tibetan singing bowls, he's a, a psychologist and he uses this in his therapies, had uh, a friend who he buys his bowls from, from Tibet, who was taking on these Sherpa orf orphans, believe it or not. So I guess, you know, as Sherpas pass away through hiking, climbing, whatever it might be, these kids are really kind of feral, like they're living outdoors. So he was taking these kids and wanted to build a small orphanage. So ironically, the first project that we did in fair trade was an orphanage in Tibet for these kids. And um, and so anyway, the idea of fair trade, again, goes back to this notion that we have this great privilege of having clients that allow us to innovate, invent, hopefully develop new types of infrastructures and, and architectures. And then could we use that and bring it to uh, the disenfranchised parts of society or other parts of society that really need it? Yeah. So that was the idea of fair trade. And so it's pretty early. We've just established it last year. We developed the orphanage. They're using the design to raise the funds they need. I think they need like 150,000 and they're pretty far along with it. So we're hopeful that they'll build it. 
that really brings me to my next question because this idea of innovative building technology with a focus on sustainability and then maybe bringing it to those that aren't otherwise able to realize it. You're going to be speaking with Toshiko Mori this year at the, the state conference. And uh, Toshiko is a professor in the practice of architecture at the GSD and founding principal of her own architecture firm, Toshiko Mori Architect. I understand you've got a unique connection to Toshiko. Not only did she sit on your final thesis review that uh, you brought up earlier, um, but her mentor while at Cooper Union was the late John Haydock, who also happens to be your father-in-law. Another connection is through your work. Like we were just saying, Toshiko has described an overarching goal of her firm's work as creating infrastructure for the development of society, which overlaps some with your own research. So can you elaborate more on how you feel Toshiko and you are connected? Yeah, thanks, Sean. It's a great question. You know, it's interesting. You, I've never really reflected on that, but it, I'll tell you that when I got to the GSD, I went there because Rem Coolhouse was there and it was the fundamental reason. I, I actually only applied <laughs> to the GSD because he was there and I was uh, a big fan of the work and very interested in the thinking of the work. And the year I got there, they tenured and they, they don't tenure faculty at the GSD very often. They don't really have to because they can pull in architects from all over the world. And But they tenured two new faculty the year I started there. And one was Rem Coolhouse and the other was Toshiko Mori. And, you know, at the time I thought, wow, these are so diametrically opposed kind of figures. You know, Rem's architecture is uh, highly diagrammatic, highly not really about the details per se, really focused on uh, a kind of a subversion of the capitalist system, even though ironically, everything he does is, you know, not, you could argue whether he's subverting it or not, but a lot of really, and in my opinion, still one of the most important thinkers of my generation and my classmates, including, you know, Josh Ramos at Rex or Jeannie Gang or others that, you know, were highly influenced by, by Rem's thinking as we all were. But, you know, in thinking about Toshiko, who I didn't have a lot of interaction as a student there, and she did sit on my thesis review. And, you know, for most of my education at the GSD, Renata Hayduck and I were not, you know, we were together for, I think, I actually went away to China, came back and got her design degree, and it was during my second degree that Renata and I met. So it, my connection, my familial connection with her was not established until, frankly, after I got married. But now, looking back on it, uh, and looking at my own work, and this recent book that Toshiko's put out, which really talks about infrastructure in a way that I, I think she's always been handling, but I hadn't really understood, is much more aligned, I think. And I frankly think it's also a product of her being at the GSD and this thinking that, you know, we sort of uh, silent undercurrent of things that happen in places like that, where you all leave and you realize you're all kind of doing the same thing, but in different ways, you know, and how did that happen? You know, that kind of thing. So I think there's a connection there. What I, what I find really um, inspiring about Toshiko's work, let's say, uh, as opposed to Coolhouse's work, is it, the empathetic approach through which she takes with the work. And that's something I think we try to do, I try to do in my practice, is take this empathetic approach. So even these urban projects we do, it's a lot of work with the local community. It's really understanding how they practice the space. It's really trying to understand the culture of it. And it's through that that we develop a new infrastructure. And I think like Coolhouse is, at a, you know, he's doing this maybe at, you know, 10,000 feet and not, not necessarily boots on the ground. But it, I think like Toshiko's work in Senegal is... Uh, for me is a masterpiece uh, of work. And I think I, I, I'm, I'm going to be very excited to talk to her about that a bit because about where that falls in her oeuvre. But I think that work for me is, I, I think it fires on all pistons of everything she's talking about. And I think it's 
it even connects back to, you know, ironically, some of the things we were just talking about with my fair trade stuff. And so it's funny, uh, those of us that are academics and practitioners, I think, you know, one of the great privileges of being an academic is the ability to constantly have to be thinking about what you're doing in the context of larger things. Whereas in practice, you know, we can so easily get caught up in what we're doing and just getting the next project out and getting the project deliverable going. And that reflection time, you know, is only happens if they ask you to do a lecture somewhere and you got to put it all together and figure out like, how does this all add up? But academically, we're doing that all the time, right? We're constantly, and I think she is as well, but constantly reevaluating, recontextualizing, trying to understand where our research fits into the larger project of architecture. So to answer your question, I I think in retrospect, I'm not just the familial connection with Toshiko because we do kind of think of her almost as family, but professionally, I'm seeing alignments with her work that I've never thought about before. So in some way, that's the gift of being asked to interview her on this because, you know, when we talk about, I mean, I would say 90% of the time when I talk to Toshiko, it's about John Haydock because he was such a huge impact in her life. And my relationship to him was nothing like his students' relationship to him. So that's always fun for us to share. One of the points you brought up was about community. And I want to reflect upon that with the background of the conference theme, which is together in the light of what everybody's been through over the past year and a half and being able to come back together for this conference. What comes to mind for me about Toshiko's work is this idea of making connections from seemingly disparate, unconnected areas of design. Innovative materials and systems that have not been used in these ways before, and then these unique approaches to sustainability and resilience, and combining those into community and place-oriented architecture. You talked about a little bit, but I, I wonder if you could go into more, what speaks to you about Toshiko's work and what lessons do you think we can learn from her approach to architecture to make our world more connected? Yeah, great. Well, first, you know, look, Toshiko's brilliant. I mean, she's very smart. She's uh, very well-read. She's uh, an an international uh, figure. Uh, You know, she's lived all over the world. She's uh, worked all over the world. And so her uh, ability to pull tangentially across uh, different things is is pretty robust. And I think she's her ability to synthesize that in simple gestures is really, you know, a kind of gift, right? So the ability to take cult and let's, you know, talk about, I'll, I'll use the word infrastructure for lack of a better term, but cultural infrastructural conditions, environmental infrastructural conditions, building technologies and those types of things. And her ability to kind of think about how to weave those together so that the whole is greater than the sum of all those pieces, I think is a real a gift that she's really very, very good at. The other thing that I think Toshiko and I, and this is where I would connect it to John Haydock. John always talked about the social contract. And for him, I think the social contract was that the architect has a social contract to society to produce something that better society in some particular way. And I think she, I think that's at the heart of the work that she does in many ways. And so I think she's always, it's not just about making a cool looking building that, you know, formally is doing X, Y, and Z, and maybe environmentally is responsive, but it's also something that is kind of socially responsible to the site, to the people, to the users, and those kinds of things. And I think that's a kind of empathy that she brings to the work. And I will often tell my students that um, vulnerability is a strength. And I think there's a certain vulnerability. I mean, you know, when when you speak to Toshiko, she's not a, you know, she's not a braggart. She's not going to tell you about how great she is and all the stuff she's doing. She's she's very uh, humble, I think, in the way that she operates. And I think it's genuine. And, but I think she's also very 
astute to the context of the situation that she's in. And I think that comes from someone who was a foreigner coming to the United States, you know, living in France for a while. In other words, as opposed to, you know, someone who's just only knows their bubble where they are, if you understand what I mean. So I think, I think that's exciting. I think I'm, I'm very, you know, I think she's a tremendous voice for women in architecture. And I think it, it's kind of like at so many different levels, like she's a perfect person for the conference with this notion of community, because I think she's a kind of conduit if I could put it that way, for those kinds of relationships and projects, et cetera. One of the words you said that we could all have absorbed from the last 18 months is empathy. And I do see that in Toshiko's work that I think will be really powerful to learn more about at the conference. With that, uh, Darren, that ends our time today. I, I just want to say again, thank you for your time. Darren Petrucci, AIA founder and principal at AIR, professor at ASU. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Sean. It was really fun. Next, we'll be speaking with Claudia Kappeljoy, co-founder, creative director, and managing director of CLL, Concept Lighting Lab, an architectural lighting design studio in Tucson with work all over the world. Claudia holds master's degrees in architecture and architectural lighting design and practiced in both fields throughout Europe before coming to the States. At the conference, Claudia will be speaking with Gabriela Carrillo. Gabriela is a Mexican architect and founder of her firm Taller Gabriela Carrillo and the collective C733, her work pairs nicely with Claudia's because of the emphasis she places on creating architectural moments through light. And Claudia tells us about her history, her approach to lighting design, and what speaks to her about Gabriela's work. I met Claudia at her studio in the Barrio Viejo down in Tucson, where we toured her gently lit studio and sat down to talk about the upcoming conference. Claudia, thank you so much for joining us here today on Tracing Architecture. I want to start off with just learning a little bit more about you. You're originally from Austria, and then you studied and worked in the UK and Sweden before coming to Tucson. What led you to come to Arizona, and what do you feel is different about the qualities of light and lighting design from your experience in Europe to your experiences here in the US? Well, thanks for having me. Nice to be here. And then uh, to come to your question, I followed my heart. Um, I, I got to know my husband, Rick Joy, who happened to choose Tucson as his home base. And I, I followed him to be here. And we happened to meet through my previous work experience in Sweden. So I'm kind of like starting backwards. Initially graduating from, I studied in architecture in Graz in Austria. That brought me through my thesis project to working in Sweden. I realized a room at the Ice Hotel to finish my thesis project and create an experience there. And that then led me to uh, the observation that I don't know enough about lighting when I wanted to do atmospheric space, which brought me to Sweden to take an additional education in architectural lighting design. So I went to Sweden, Stockholm, and attended uh, a master in architectural lighting design and health and after graduating from that, I realized I didn't know enough about lighting still. I wanted to work in a field, started to work for a very established lighting design studio called Youth Architecture that was led by two very creative guys, Nikos Erdmann and Kai Pipo. And then through my work experience there, I uh, had the opportunity to work on some projects in the Southwest, including working with Marwan Al-Sayed, Wendell Bennett, and Rick Joy. And so then that channeled into meetings, projects, you know, life, life situations of different kinds that happened so that it 
grew out of a work relationship into a personal relationship, which eventually brought me to the southwest. And so then, as far as light and lighting design, you know, what what has that experience been like between Europe to here, and and what have you, I guess, gained since you've come here to to the southwest? Um, very different base conditions. Having grown up in Central Europe, the light condition is more balanced. You have more balanced seasons too, and more balanced environments. Then having lived and worked in Scandinavia, a very different condition. You're, you're rather north, uh, northern hemisphere, so that means that the sun in winter time doesn't rise beyond 7 degrees in Stockholm, 7.53 degrees. Uh, in Stockholm at its peak, so the sun is standing very flat. You get very glared and uh, shadows are extremely long casted shadows. And in summer times, the sun basically doesn't really set. So you have these extreme conditions of daylight. I should add to the Scandinavian condition, you have extended twilight. So you have up to two hours in the morning and two hours in the evening. That is kind of a blue, blue hour. And then in the desert, you have a very different environment, climate, and light condition, which is extremely glary, very overpowering, a lot of intensity of light that needs to be mitigated. And then you have a very short twilight, which is 15 minutes to 20 minutes. And so you barely have a golden hour, definitely not a blue hour. And so also very different in the sun, sunrise, sunset moments, twilight moments. And then in terms of light culture, how you live with light, because of the intrinsic light conditions that you have in Scandinavia, the average person has a very strong affinity toward qualitative lighting. The average person understands what the impact of light is on your health, on your well-being, on your reading of space, creating moods and comfort. And so the average person has a very, it's valued very, very much. And then when I arrived in the Southwest, something like electric lighting as a, as a lighting design profession wasn't really, uh, whereas in, in Scandinavia, it is a privilege to work in the field and it's very respected. Uh, in the Southwest, it, if you were not an electrical engineer and were doing your power density, it was just a very different approach towards lighting as a, as a means in the dark environment. And so culturally, there's a big difference between the European and Scandinavian approach is, I would say, you know, 15 years ago, the light technology was also different. You had halogens, you had different light sources. Now everything is, is LED dominated. But culturally, the approach has been very different because you would have one light source in the context here in the Southwest that was flooding a space with too much light, whereas in the European context, you would have many multiple points of light that all together created a field of light that gave modulation and variation and an opportunity to change moods. So that has changed since a little bit, I'd say, but I can't even really speak too much about the European market, especially not the last two years, but sure, LED has, um, has changed that reality. Do you think that the culture in the U.S. towards lighting design has changed in your time here? And, and in so what ways has it changed? I do believe that 
there is more understanding of the general public towards opportunity of using light and opportunities of changing spaces through light, which somewhat results from product that is more market ready. Like, I mean, you have a Philips Hue lamp that everyone can control with their app and their iPhone. And so it is a playful approach towards changing light. And it, it makes more people aware of opportunities. Uh, it has also become more affordable and more maybe accessible is the right word. But when it comes to, to an understanding of qualitative lighting, I think there's still a there's still a lot of opportunity to improve an understanding that's not quite at the same at that same level that you would have in Scandinavia and in Central Europe. There's also not that same sensibility. So on on the note of sensibility, I, I think this is a great time to talk about who you'll be speaking with at this year's state conference. Who is uh, Gabriela Carrillo? She's a Mexican architect and uh, also the winner of the 2017 International Women in Architecture Award. So Gabriela has often described her own work in terms of the ephemeral, of atmospheric, and of the relationship of void and light. And I think it's interesting that you talk about your own work in almost the exact same sorts of terms. And so I'm curious, how do you approach lighting design to achieve certain atmospheres? And then what are the kinds of things you're finding you're trying to convey through lighting? So, I mean, it's super exciting for Gabriela to join uh, this conference and to have a conversation with her over her work. And it's really inspiring uh, what she had been doing over her career. And now most recently in a different collaborative environment. The little I know about Gabriela's approach is that I think that some of the words you use, like the ephemeral, the atmospheric, I think is very much grounded in her previous partnership with Mauricio, Mauricio Roja, who has a very strong philosophy. And, and I think she strongly adopted that approach and now is maybe also evolving from it. So we will hear about this in the conference, but the way, if you ask me of how I see similarities to that is, I do see that I approach lighting differently than other lighting designers because I think about it not in isolation. I do think about lighting very much in its context and in its interaction with its surrounding and the people. So, if I might be able to compare it maybe a little bit with, with uh, Gabriella's work might have been in or maybe some similarities in the way we, we, we worded. Is the atmospheric for me is both subjective and objective. The opportunity of using or knowing how to use light to modulate a mood or to create interest or to guide your gaze and your focus if, if you know how to operate with this medium, you can really have a significant impact on space with a, with a minimal mean of light. And you know, some, some architects have been masterful with it, like a Bhutan or um, a big joy. But then I think that also technology has advanced so much over the recent years that there is a real difficulty in understanding of how you can use electric lighting to, to support that. Not so much simulating it, simulating daylight, which we try to stay away from because daylight should be 
like significant in what daylight does, and electric light should be in balance with it rather than simulating something that it's not. When you're going for a certain sort of atmosphere, and you can even use like a specific example or a project, like what is the process you go through in figuring out how to convey that atmosphere through light? I think lighting design in, intrinsically is collaborative. So you work with, with a team, you work usually with, a, with an architect who has a strong affinity and understanding of the importance of light, and then you work with a client who has an affinity and a passion for light. That's when we have the chance to come to the table and contribute to the conversation. While there are specific tasks and codes and just like specific things you have to comply with, there's also this whole other notion over supporting the architectural concept or even enhancing materiality, um, a moment. And probably one of the programs where it's most apparent is, let's say, a restaurant environment. Unless the lighting is in tune with the other atmospheric presence of that space, the restaurant will not work, even if the waiters are fantastic, uh, the service is phenomenal, the food is incredible. If the lighting doesn't match all those moments, you will not have a good experience. So it's very much experience-based. Another example of how you might approach it is we just had been working with like a large hospitality project in Mexico where we are on a jungle mountain next to the ocean on a fault line and where you have 178 standalone buildings that are on this mountain. It's a project that took eight years and had, you know, a concise budget that we had to meet and a lot of different interests and collaborative parties and sequences that we had to go through. But one of the guiding principles from the investor and developer team was to work with as many local products as possible and to create a distinctly Mexican atmosphere. So the design and architecture was done by Victoria Studio Victoria. We worked with multiple local architects on different portions of the project. One of them was FRB Architectura, the other team was JSA and Brazilian Architects. Then there were landscape architects involved, Hugo Sanchez and, and, and Torno. So all these teams bring their expertises and with the lighting, we were tasked both to develop something from a limited palette that wasn't fulfilling what we needed or it wasn't the local product didn't really offer us what we wanted or needed. But then at the same time, the local crafts culture opened totally different doors because there's such an amazing talent pool and tradition in Mexico that you can customize things, which wouldn't be such an easy task in the, in the U.S. context where you need to get things listed or pictures listed, tested, which immediately then becomes more expensive in the mm. realizations and implementation. And so there, there are then very different opportunities. And how that influenced our approach for the lighting was taking some of the opportunities that started to present themselves and running with it. You know, just starting to prototype our own fixtures, finding very nearly dumbed-down pragmatic solutions over connections because we knew that being on a jungle mountain, you will not have... Not every installer will have the specific tools, not even an Allen wrench. So you need a pretty much 
bring everything down to the most essential components and means and needs and and then you also need to cater towards the global operator that has a marketing presence and has wants to wants to attract the global traveler so then you need to also kind of meet their requirements and aesthetic and performative needs so that juxtaposition and then the close collaboration with teams like studio with joy who also did all the interiors on that project was a really like many year process of fine-tuning the initial concepts that went very much how do you have sufficient light to be safe not too much light to shy the wildlife away create an atmosphere through it that is welcoming and soothing and allow pretty much nature to shine which is part of the base I think part of the core of that project which is this mandarina one and only project in on the Mexican coast in Nayarit. So you mentioned a, a couple of things in all of that, and one of the key ones was collaboration, but you also mentioned Louis Kahn, and it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes of his, which he says, the sun never knew how great it was until it hit the side of a building. And I like that idea because in the idea of collaboration between a lighting designer and an architect, the two media you're sharing is material and light. And I'm curious, and maybe you could even use that same project about like, what was the relationship that you built in that project to figure out the balance between certain materials and the light you were going to use, or how you were going to use light on those materials? No, not sure we can be in the same, in the, in the same dragon as Louis Kahn here. But, um, <laughs> so trying to pick up on this, um, you know, light in itself, you don't really perceive. It's this ephemeral medium unless it needs a material and it interacts with that material, and to an extent even interacts with your eye, there's not much to be seen. And so whatever light will need will come to life through that interaction. And then at the project in Mexico, it is, it is quite interesting because there was a back and forth over what is suitable as, as a finished surface, and it happened to become a, a plastered finish that is very much modulated through the hand. So in many aspects, again, the craft culture and these traditions made their way into the architecture. And the lighting is very restrained in, in many regards. It's really intentionally placed, but also minimally placed. So it's not overpowering. It's, it's, it's there when you need it, but it's trying to stay away from lighting spaces that don't really need light. So you might have surfaces, even like water tables, that become reflective tables where you need a minimal light, where you can even have, I mean, we just went to photograph the project and we had a full moon light. And a lot of the exterior areas were were kept dark because you had enough light just by a few points that illuminated these magnificent trees and the landscape. And then that again, mirrored back in the table of the water and from that on you just had sufficient light you don't need much and then similarly with in many regards the approach for that project was even a little bit like a systematic approach because we found we found responses that engaged with the structures several of the structures are very open they just frame the landscape and are within the landscape rather than being a building on a mountain and so the lighting works with those notions of the structure mm-hmm. and it 
tries to respect the structure and then kind of tries to be restrained and not call attention to itself. I mean, in many regards, lighting, electrical lighting, you will recognize when you talk about lighting when there's either a lack of, or if it's an overabundance of, or if it's it's irritating. If lighting is just good, you barely talk about it. You just accept it as being like soothing. And that's usually the lighting we like to go towards in the terms of architectural lighting. It's really like the architecture becoming the direct the backdrop for life to unfold. We like the lighting to support that without calling attention to itself. So I wanna talk about the theme for this year's conference for a minute, which is together. Mm-hmm. And We've been talking about it as the celebration for a chance to, to come back together, but I think it's also a recognition of how isolated we were feeling and also how that has been changing throughout the past two years. And I think for me personally, and I think for others as well, my relationship with light was a totally different place over those two years just a it went from you know a, a regular interaction with the outdoors and with natural light to almost solely being illuminated by the blue light of a screen and so I'm curious as a lighting designer what did the last two years look like for you how did your practice change and have you learned or gained anything new out of that experience that maybe was unexpected well I think we all we all have um, some insights were needed to adapt in many, many regards. Spring of 2019, actually 2020, I'm not thinking, 2020, <laughs> sorry, that wasn't, that wasn't so easy to um, just adopt, like real quick, everything went remote. And then as a small business, you know, we just had to kind of learn to communicate remotely. A lot of the things, I should say, because of the body of our work being international and we had a lot of systems in place that made it easier for us to transition into remote working but we do have a very beautiful environment here and we do cherish the studio culture and the proximity and being able to talk to each other on a daily basis and also working now uh, or expanding more into the interior side of things and where you have like you need to touch things, you need to fill them, you need to have that kind of shared physical understanding. That made it very difficult to do remotely. So in, in terms of practice, I think there's maybe a little bit more openness from my side to consider partial remote engagement, but then the way we like to practice and how much we cherish studio culture and the collaborative aspect of it within the studio and then from the studio outward, um, we still prefer working in the same environment. In terms of lighting specifically of how that, you know, maybe some observation over how we are very, very lucky in the Southwest that we have an, quite a generous condition over space and light. It just makes you, you know, just pause and reflect and just every now and then tap you on the shoulder and say like, thank you. Mm. It's good to have that. Similarly, uh, the home environment that we're in, we have a beautiful courtyard. And when we had been working remotely and I was more at home, there were really beautiful moments to just enjoy that, that you might miss out on in, in a more, you know, common work routine where you, you're here like from eight till 
salon or something. In terms of electric lighting and how that shifted, I think we have seen that we had a lot of work pick up on the aspect of improving home environments, which is a very positive thing, and that there was a real push towards improving your home because you might spend more time there, and you realize that actually your home could improve with a better light bulb. And so I think there was a real interest in that, and it's a beneficial move. I also think that there was a huge shift in office environments because for a while it wasn't even clear, is the office remaining? Is the office as a workplace becoming obsolete? How, how is that going? And then it was very interesting that over the recent months, we've been part of some conversations where we heard from Gensler did a lot of studies, for instance, where they realized that there's very different interests of different generations within the work, within the career field, where the younger generation is very, very interested in working in an office environment, and that, let's say, the, mid, the mid-aged person in their career paths does appreciate the flexibility to be able to coordinate their time more independently. But I think that takes also some kind of maturity and understanding of how to be organized. And so I think it's it's impacting everyone differently. Uh, we have some clients who have had you know extreme success with their companies and they would say they believe that the work environment will never go back 100% into an office. They will always stay somewhere at 75% in the office and the rest uh, remaining remote for different reasons that have more to do with light. And that's got to have an effect on how you then approach a lighting solution for an office environment, right? I mean, if you know, at least in some way. In some way, yeah. It changes. I don't know. Every project has its own, its own tasks and questions and it you might have your preconceptions, but it might change. Sure. I try to stay very open when we are getting invited to a new project and just listen to that particular team and, and tasks that are coming towards us and then try to have a fresh approach to, approach to it. I wanted to talk about, again, in the context of Together, Gabriella's work. And a lot of her work has, especially most recently, been oriented towards a lot of community-based projects. And she's also talked about a need for these community-based projects due to uh, a feeling of different aspects of her home being in crisis. And so maybe the darker side of togetherness is crisis and and the things we have to deal with when we are together. Um, And I'm curious, just based on what you've learned about Gabriella's work in that vein. What do you reflect on with that and what do you take away from that? I hope we'll hear about it during the conference uh, much more than than me trying to assume too much. And again, the little little I know from the conversation I've had with Gabi is that she sees a lot of opportunity in aspect of crisis, not just, you know, the the overwhelming thinking of, of loss and just like complexities that are really sometimes hard to just grasp that she in the way she approaches her work and and also how she runs with it is is really seeing opportunities in these aspects and in her considering architecture over time i think she's starting 
to draw more and more from that time aspect and also imperfections and and aspects of pretty much the, the curveballs that are thrown to you, but seeing them as opportunities rather than limitations. And I think, well, we'll, we'll hear about it in the in the conference, I assume. But I think she's also drawing a lot from her really uh, her ongoing dialogue between academia and practice and so through that exchanges exploring different themes and topics that that are allowing you in the in the academic context to be researched a bit deeper than in the practical context where you sometimes need to find a solution relatively quickly and so i think there's a really interesting dialogue that she very much cherishes at least the way i uh, interpret interpret it um well we look forward to hearing your conversation with Gabriella, and we want to thank you for your time today. So thank you so much, Claudia. Thanks for having me. That's it for today's episode. Thank you again to Darren Petrucci and Claudia Capeljoy for their time and sharing their thoughts with us. Their work is inspiring, and I'm looking forward to hearing more from them at the conference. For more information on the conference and to learn how to register, follow the AIA Arizona Instagram or visit AIA.org slash Arizona. And keep an eye out next week for the third and final special episode for the conference. You can find it at our website at tracingarchitecture.org or wherever podcasts can be found.